Thanks for tuning in to Body Talk with Bex. This week, we will actually be talking to someone really special to me. You'll hear about her quite a bit, probably, in any episodes that have anything to do with my own health journey. This is my amazing Aunt Jean. She is one of my mother's older sisters. She was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma when she was in high school and has had a multitude of other issues because of the treatment that she received. And so today I got to sit down with her and actually hear from her about all of these experiences. I think that she's an incredible example of how to keep moving forward and her positivity just radiates off of her and I think it it's really special and I wanted to share her story with you all. Fair warning though that we do have dogs barking in the background and a phone ringing halfway through. I tried my best to edit out all of it but couldn't quite catch it all. But if you stick around all the way until the end, you'll also get a few fun stories from when I was a kid that involve my Aunt Jean. So with that, let's just jump right on in. I didn't say leave meeting, aren't you lucky? Oh, that would not have been a good start. <laughs> that was a choice. That was a choice. <laughs> okay, I've been excited to talk to you about this because I've never actually heard from you about all of your experiences. I've only ever really heard things that mom's told me about what she remembered. And I mean, she was so young at the time. Right. You know, and probably not paying as much attention as she was, you know, as she got older and started knowing more about what you're going through. So I don't know a whole lot. And so reading your notes was really interesting. And I researched absolutely everything that was in your notes. And I wow. notes to your notes for myself, just so that I know what we're talking about um, okay. and all that. So yeah, a lot of my listed health history doesn't necessarily apply to the Hodgkins. So some of that I'm probably not going to talk about today, but That's okay. a, yeah. lot of it, a lot of it is related because related. it's it's fallout from the treatment that caused all these other things. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. So it looks like you were diagnosed in 1975. But can you tell me, when did you actually start feeling sick? What were the symptoms that you were feeling that led you to need to see a doctor? Yeah. I mean, you were in high school at the time, right? Right. It was my junior year of high school. And I don't know how long this had been going on. But at some point, I realized that I was scratching myself just lightly. So I wasn't hurting the skin, but I was constantly scraping if I was, and I would realize I was doing it and I, cause I, I kind of itched. And so I was always doing that. And my mom went through this whole long, trying different laundry soaps, trying different 
this and that, trying not to wear certain fabrics. And we never really came up with anything that made any difference. That's the only real symptom I had, which I heard stories of other people who were throwing up, having like recurrent severe flus over and over for a couple of years before the doctors went, oh, you know, maybe this isn't normal and checked further. But I decided to fairly early on, I guess, pop up with a lump that I'm not sure when it happened. It may have been around like it may have been kind of at the first of the year of 75. I had a lump in the left side of my neck, which was just, I was like, oh, that's a little weird, you know? And, and then I kind of forgot about it and it was gone very was soon. Just a little guy or? It's kind of like a large marble size, but soft and squished around so I could kind of move it around. It didn't hurt, nothing. Yeah. Um, which turns out if it hurts, it's less likely to be cancer when you have a lump. So uh, there's that. <laughs> First clue that I didn't know anything about. So then that went away and I never thought about it again, really, which is part of why I don't remember when it happened. And then all of a sudden we used to dress for dinner for Easter dinner and stuff like that and have the grandmas over. And, and we were having the big family dinner at Easter that spring. And I reached up and was fiddling with my necklace. And I bumped into this lump that was probably a bit larger than the other one had been on the right side. And just something about that just was like, oh, there's something going on here. This is not right. So that ended up going to an ear, nose, and throat doctor who said, oh, you know, you have cats. It's probably just cat stretch fever. You know, it's probably not. And he biopsied it with a needle biopsy. And that got me to go up to Stanford because it was Hodgkin's, which I found out later. My primary doctor, when he referred me up there, thought I was going to die because just a few years before he'd had a kid diagnosed with that. And they didn't have, they didn't have it figured out yet. So I was in this short window of time, they had figured out what to do that would actually work to knock this thing on its rear, which I greatly appreciated, (laughs) even though it was really no fun to go through. Yeah. Just real quick for listeners, in case someone Mm -hmm. doesn't know what Hodgkin's is, that is a cancer of the lymphatic system. Yeah. It's basically the non-Hodgkin's lymphomas are the nastier ones to have now because they're harder to cure, although they have some pretty good stuff on them now. But when I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's and they had just figured out Hodgkin's, they hadn't figured much out on the others. And I was very lucky, really, to have gotten this because it was curable at the time. Okay. Yeah. Still scary. I mean, you were what, 16? 17? I was 17. I was 17, just turning 17. I was set up to go as an exchange student to Tehran, Iran that summer. That was before the whole mess with the Shah being deposed and the crazy people taking over. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was supposed to do that. I was pretty excited about that. Well, this diagnosis happening in the spring, they're like, you're not going anywhere. You're having all these things done starting now. So shall I go into that 
at this point yeah. what, what they did to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing they do to diagnose it is what they call a staging laparotomy. And they cut you open in the middle and go in and biopsy liver and spleen and look around and stuff. And in case they end up deciding they need to do radiation to the abdomen, they tuck your ovaries under the uterus to protect them a little from that if it needed to happen. So they move things around. One woman that I was talking to in a waiting room one time said she swore they took a wooden spoon and just stirred the whole thing. I was really just visualizing that. <laughs> I know. It's a good visual. <laughs> yeah. So actually a lot of supportive therapy in those waiting rooms, actually, for my mom as well as for me over the years. But um, yeah, so they do that. And at the time they were removing your spleen because they didn't think spleens did anything. Come to find out, yep, they do. So now I'm stuck with no spleen. And if I get a high fever, I'm supposed to immediately take this heavy duty antibiotic and get to the emergency room for blood cultures. Because apparently if it's in the bloodstream and that's what spikes the fever, then I don't have a whole lot of time. So, so that, that's another fun thing from not having the spleen, but you know, at the time they didn't know. Yeah. So they biopsied the liver. It was clear. The spleen was clear. All of these things were clear. So they diagnosed me at actually a fairly early stage. They call it 2A. And the A is whether it had symptoms or not. And they didn't really count the itching because I mean that's kind of pretty minor. So they were calling it 2A. And two is because it was on both sides. They split your body into quadrants. If it's only on one quadrant, that's best. Then if it goes to the other side, that's the next one. And then if it goes down to the other half, then then getting worse and worse. So, so yeah, so they do all of these tests to see where they think it is and isn't. And then gave me this regimen of five days a week for four weeks, I had to go up to Stanford to have radiation to the chest, which they explained oh, this shouldn't bother you at all. Most people have no trouble with it. So I remember when I got home from my first one, I went with my best friends down to 31 Flavors, walked down, and I was feeling a little odd by the time we got there, but I thought, well, you know, no biggie. It's, you know, whatever. So I ordered my favorite kind of ice cream and we all were sitting there eating our ice cream and I, it tasted just meh to me, which it's my favorite ice cream. Thank you. (laughs) And then I just felt like I could hardly summon up the energy to get back home. And I actually, I don't remember if I walked home or if we called my mom and had her come get me, but that was kind of my first clue that it was going to be a little trickier than just, Oh, no big deal. Yeah. So I ended up getting fairly sick every day from that and would often throw up afterwards on the way home or something. And then, so that went on for the four weeks. And then after that, we had to start the chemo, which was really fun. Not something I ever recommend anybody do if they don't have to. (laughs) Yes. Well, yeah. But if you do have to do it. (laughs) Real quick, 
so you were in high school. Were you still going to school and then after school going to these appointments? This was in the summer for the radiation. So all of that got out of the way in the summer. Then I think, I'm not exactly clear. I think the chemo started just before school started. And no, I was not going to school at that yeah, point. No. That would no. have knocked you out of school for sure. Yeah. That, I was really sick with that. And they would give you a dose. It was Wednesdays. I'd go up on a Wednesday and you go up real early in the morning and you get your blood test and your chest x-ray. And then you hang around. Fortunately, there was a shopping center nearby so we could go window shopping because we weren't going to buy tons of stuff every week. Yeah. <laughs> or ever. And so we'd go hang out there and maybe have a little something but to eat. But then we'd get back to the hospital in time for the afternoon appointment with the doctor and the treatment. So they would go over with you, have things looked and kind of look at you. And then they would tell you, you know, so the first time they hit me with the full chemo dose was really pretty awful. They, they gave me two drugs intravenously And then they would send me home with pills to take for, I think, a week. So if I had those pills to take, it would continue the nausea and vomiting for days longer. I would be nauseated at least for the full week that I was on those pills. But the the chemo just nailed me. I was throwing up on the way home in the back of the car. I was sick. I couldn't hardly move. I couldn't face the thought of food. It smells just... We're not good. And so it would be a few days of that. And then my mom would start coming and, and trying to coax me to eat or drink something. And pretty much the really weird thing was the first thing I could face was Coca-Cola, not Pepsi, not root beer, not nothing else, Coca-Cola and salami. <laughs> what? That's what got me through the chemo. So yeah, I don't know, but that's that's what it was. So she poor thing, she would come up and she would tell me everything we had in the fridge and everything that there was to offer me to try to coax me to want something. Or she could go to the store and get me something else. I'm like, just stay away from me. <laughs> but yeah, she put a lot of effort into that. Poor thing. And yeah. A lot of worry, I think, too. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I would do that for close to a week. And then you go back the following Wednesday and you do it again. Oh my gosh. And how long did that go on for? It was supposed to be six weeks, six months of that. So six sets of, you do two Wednesdays in a row and then you'd have two weeks off. It was wonderful. Those two weeks off. I was going to say that sounds horrible. Yeah. So. If, you know, if I could be feeling okay by the end of that second week or part of the third week that I wasn't having treatment, I'd start going to school again. And obviously I couldn't keep up with the classwork and everybody was just wonderful. They didn't care that I could come. I could sit in there. I could zone out. I could try to participate if there was something I could. (laughs) They were just happy you were there. Yeah. They were just really nice about it. And everybody was great. So I, um, so I would go in and try to do stuff and 
then I would go back and they'd hit me again. And they learned over time that they really had to give me less. Because if you went in and the blood test in the morning showed you were severely anemic, they wouldn't give you the treatment. And that would bump it another week. And, hmm. and if they went in and they treated me because it was just high enough and they hit me with too hard a dose at that point, it would make the next week's not happen. And then you have to repeat the cycle of two. So that would bump, you know, an extra month into the picture. So I think a few times we had to push it back by a week. And a few times, there were at least two times where we actually bumped it out a month. So it was a good eight month situation, starting at the beginning of the school year. So by the time spring rolled around, I was finishing up, but I, you know, I couldn't graduate. <laughs> I've been there all year. So, so yeah, so I would so I was a high school dropout. I don't think that's really your fault though. I'm kind of proud of that. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. <laughs> Both of my parents being educators and yeah. yes, I'm a high school dropout, <laughs> but I did get a certificate of proficiency thing and went on to junior college and Good. stuff just to be clear. (laughs) And then also just so another little facet for people to know. So you're saying you guys drove over to Stanford. How long of a drive is that? That is about an hour. It was, it was, you know, you have to go over highway 17, which is a notoriously windy road. And especially in the summer, in the afternoons, when we'd be coming back from the treatments generally it, any any of the treatments were in, we'd be coming back in the afternoon so if if it was a summer day it, there was a lot of traffic coming to santa cruz for the beaches and it was could be really slow and it's a pretty dangerous road so yeah no, i'm <laughs> just not a lot of fun for my mom who really never drove that until she had to yeah i'm just trying to picture her driving very windy mountain roads with yeah. a sick little person in her with car somebody in the back and... of the car throwing up. Yes. Yeah. Not yeah. a fun drive. So no. wanted to add that little facet on, on top of everything for everyone yeah. there. It's really in sometimes, sometimes I think it's just a wonder she survived because that was just awful. Yeah. So you didn't really catch a break. <laughs> <laughs> So you had chemo and radiation, and then it looks like Um, in 1976. Yes, right after, I mean, just like within a month or so, uh, here I am, I'm starting to feel better. I'm thinking I'm through this and boom, apparently it's not uncommon to get shingles. If you've had chicken pox, the virus is latent in your system and stress and age and lots of different things can trigger it. And this is one of those things. So I had a pretty severe case. I mean, I had poxes all over my body and yeah. So it it wasn't fun, shall we say? No. But again, I survived and then was supposed to go that summer. We had a trip planned to go to visit the exchange student that one of my best friends had had the previous year. And I was going to go to Brazil with her. And I ended up going a week later because of the shingles. But at least I got to go. Yeah. Yeah. Not another canceled trip Right. There. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah, I was wondering how the shingles was connected. Yeah. To definitely. that, I didn't know that that you could um, yeah. could be brought on by that. Yeah. And then I was also curious. Was there a reason like why you got Hodgkins? Did they ever, there's not really like a reason. There's not really a known reason. Yeah. I still wonder about that because it just seemed like it wasn't all that common. And yet there were a number of kids that at least I think one or two others in my high school that had it within a few years of each other. I would think I was the first one. And then there were some other people that I met that had been students up at UCSC or lived in the area kind of in the same time frame, and they had it. So that kind of made me wonder because I don't think it's all that common. So it does make me wonder if there's some sort of environmental thing that was or is going on. But who knows? Maybe, yeah. Wow. Okay, so you had chemo, the radiation, you had your spleen removed. I think we yeah. mentioned you had a lumpectomy as well. Uh, the, yeah, the, that was later. Things that are kind of fallout from the actual treatment is what they were. I mean, at first okay. they were watching me for a recurrence, but then kind of transitioned to they were still watching me really carefully, but for things that were caused by the treatment I'd had. So I had uh, kind of a precancerous, but probably going to be cancerous any minute thing going on in my thyroid. They removed that in 93, which was fun because then I ended up with hypoparathyroidism, which means your calcium is all screwy right? and blood calcium level. And also they nicked a vocal cord. And so I had one vocal cord that wasn't working. You know, it was great for John and me growing up because, you know, whenever we stayed at your house and we were being not very good kids, you know, and, and, and mom would get mad at us for like, Aunt Jean doesn't yell at us. Yep. And she's like, she can't. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Well, pretty much I couldn't, but I wouldn't anyway, because you were angels. (laughs) Yeah. I had basal cell carcinomas kind of in groups over the years I'd have one and two and one and then nothing for years. And that started right around 90, 92. All of those were in the field of radiation. Yeah. Which I was so afraid that one of them would be on my face and I'd have this big scar or something. And no, fortunately they didn't radiate my face. So it didn't end up ever happening there yet. Well, I guess that's something we should address too, because you and I know, but I guess our audience doesn't. When you were treated for this with the radiation, were any of those, you know, radiation laws in place yet? Because weren't you, weren't you treated like before they really knew how much radiation you're supposed to give people? Well, they they had um, kind of a protocol that they did that they knew worked to beat Hodgkins. So they were trying to figure out what they could do that was less horrible that would still work. And I was actually on one of their studies I signed up for to help. And they randomly stick you in one group or the other to get the standard treatment or the new one. And very early on, my mom was like, you're obviously in the standard treatment group because this is really awful. And it's true. I was. So that 
study helped them realize they didn't need to hit you quite as hard and they've lightened it up a lot over the years but yeah that was and that you know especially having it at the young age that I did that makes the breast cancer more likely because of the radiation getting that yeah so in 2003 I had my left mastectomy because they couldn't do any more chest radiation. It would have been a lumpectomy followed by radiation for a normal person, but they couldn't do that. So they said, you need to take the whole breast. So then a few years later, I had a, we don't know if it was a recurrence or a new occurrence of breast cancer, basically in the same dang spot. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that was another fun thing. And that was 2003 and then 2012. Yeah. 12 and so, 13. Almost 10 years apart. That's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. I started to get kind of comfortable with every 10 years. Yeah. I'll have to. And then the uh, heart valve went south or ahead of schedule. And I was not pleased. But yeah, in, yeah, in 2010. So 2003, I had the mastectomy. 2010, I had an aortic valve replacement. And then in 2012 and 13, I had the left breast lump that had to be redone up at Stanford after things weren't. Was the aortic valve replacement also due to the radiation? Yep. Yep. Because the, I mean, they, I remember them trying to put blocks, lead blocks over certain strategic areas, but they said, you know, you can't block at all. Well, the way the radiation went, it hits your valves pretty good. So, yeah, it was a very short going from a normal valve to all of a sudden, you need to get this replaced in the next six months. And now we're watching my mitral valve. Same reason. She says, yep, it's it's the radiation. that." So, Wow. That's a, that's a lot of side effects from just a little bit too much. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the side effects potential would have been there with any level of radiation, but it, it would have been a lot less likely for any of those things yeah. to happen. Yeah. But I keep saying everything I've had is something that they could cure or fix or sort of, so I shouldn't complain too much. I'm still here to do the complaining. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you have been lucky with they've always yeah had a so, way to treat it or help you and yeah yeah I don't think I put this in the notes I sent you but when when I would come into the room my veins were so bad from the start that they could never find a vein to start the IV so I just got used to coming into the room where I was going to have the treatment and sticking my hands under hot water until they came in and that would you know make your veins expand as much as they were going to and they could usually get a vein in one of my hands and then they would start the IV and you could feel it going up and you could feel that it was toxic you just it was just uh -huh. like burning so that was really gross I think that triggered the nausea to start yeah but, um, so you had spider veins too because I know grandpa had that yeah and, and I yeah. had that but yeah that's not a great way to start no, that was no fun. And yeah, and then I'd throw up in the back seat of the car all the way home. And that was no fun either. But there was one doctor, it was a, you know, it's a teaching hospital. So periodically, the residents 
all finish their course and go off to become real doctors and a new batch of just getting starting to train as residents in that Mm. come on board. I had one do that at fairly far into my treatments and I knew the ropes. My mom knew the ropes. The nurse that had been giving me these treatments every darned time knew the ropes. They knew I couldn't take the full treatment. The full dose was not something I could be given no matter what my blood test looks like. So he comes in and he's this brash new and he's like, okay, let's, your blood counts were really good. We're going to give you, and, and then you should have seen the look on the nurse's face. And she couldn't say anything. I don't know if it's better now or not, but in 75, 76, she couldn't say anything really to him other than to make quiet, gentle suggestions that he could feel free to ignore because he was the doctor and his ego was was fragile enough being the new guy right that he had to you know nope this is what we're doing so one thing i have learned from that is you've got to stand up for yourself i should have just said no you're not doing that and that what would have happened is they would have had to probably call in the head guy who i didn't see very often but he was the one who was monitoring all of the treatments and keeping an eye on what was going on. And apparently he'd look in on me periodically, but usually I was out of it or something during that time. So I didn't really know him, but he knew me and they would have had to call him in and find out what he said. And he would have said, no, this is not yeah. going to work for her. And this is, you know, how you need to learn to be flexible yeah. but and listen to the well, nurse. It, yeah. And it means to, you know, you're new to the case and if your patient has been going through it for a while and say the nurse they might have a clue they have a rapport yeah they might have a better yeah. so that was it. yeah that was the second time we had to not do my treatment the next week and that bumped me to starting to so that added an extra treatment because I had to recover from that and then they had to do the cycle of two in a row so yeah so he learned something I think from that however I had to live through it to teach him. And I kind of wish that I had known more how to stand up and say no to a dog. It's not easy. You you were young too. I mean, that's at any age, that's hard to do. But when you feel like you're, you're in the vulnerable position, you don't have the, I guess, age to back up the knowledge Sometimes right. it can be a little more intimidating than adult to adult saying no. Right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, especially at the time we were all used to just saying the doctor knows best. We yeah. do what the doctor says. And uh, I've learned that you kind of have to be a little pickier about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I didn't know about that guy either. That's. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I hope he did learn a lesson from that. I, I hope yeah. so. I assume so. <laughs> I want to believe so, but yeah. yeah. And that, was that the only time that that happened though? That was the only time that happened. I think we only had the one shift over because it's a year long program and I'm pretty sure I had the same person through till they the change over and then the same person through. So okay. a long time ago, so I could be wrong on that. Has it gotten easier over the years to be more assertive doctors like that? 
Yeah, I think it has. I also worked in a doctor's office for a really good doctor. And I think that also helped. You see what, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. And, and he used to periodically say, well, that's why we call it the practice of medicine. We do the best we can and we're, we're still practicing. So, yeah. yeah. So you, you have to speak up and say, I don't think so. And ask a lot of questions and yeah. And I bet that also taught you how to interact and point things out to them in a way that they'll maybe be more receptive. Yeah. Maybe. I think that may have helped too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've already kind of talked about it, but you know, the long-term effects, you know, uh, were, were you expecting any of them or um, were they all just kind of a surprise as they came over the years? Some of each. The shingles right after treatment was a surprise. Okay. Um, and then in the short term, I spent a few years where I got pneumonia regularly. Oh. And I, I would start out thinking, you know, because I have hay fever, allergies, I'd be sneezing and, oh, my allergies are really bad. Gosh, my allergies, I think maybe this is a cold actually gosh, I'm not sure this cold is getting really bad. And then I'd have the fever. And <laughs> I remember I went to uh, Rio once and we were having this lovely class sitting around in a circle outside in the sun. It was lovely. And I, I was so spacey and I couldn't figure out which way was up. And I fortunately was able to call my mom to come get me. And my fever was 103, which, Ooh. you know, yeah, bit high. So it was when I realized, okay, we're, we're, we're sick again. It wasn't just allergies today. Oh, yeah. So there was that. There was the thyroid cancer. I wasn't expecting that. And by the time the rest of it happened, they kind of had been developing a list of things they were seeing happen. So I had been warned by really excellent follow-up from first of all, Stanford, and then later on the local oncologist that I would see. And also my cardiologist that I worked for, who sat me down one time and said, we have to start watching you for these things. <laughs> we need to, you need these tests. So we have a baseline and we got to watch because something could happen here. And so that, that was, I knew that breast cancer was a thing that would happen, but that wasn't going to happen to me. So it wasn't a problem. <laughs> I didn't need to worry about that one. Just like how Hodgkin's didn't happen to you. Kind of like that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it was, it was, I was really, really ticked about that one. <laughs> but, you know, again, they were able to do get rid of it. And then when there was another little tiny lump below the re reconstruction that they did underneath it, there was, they can't get every cell when they do the surgery. So that was why it had to be redone and they got everything that they possibly could. And, and I'm back on tamoxifen and <laughs> got another year of that. So, so there's that. And then the heart valve, I guess, for me, I was expecting my mitral valve to go. I wasn't expecting my aortic valve to go. And it went first and within five years was normal to, we got to replace this now. And so that was kind of a surprise. 
And now I have to take a blood thinner every day to keep the mechanical valve from causing blood clots and stuff. And now we're looking at my mitral valve getting a little sticky. So we're watching that and I'm taking a new medication to try to alleviate the effects of that not working so well. And so, yeah, the medications just keep stacking up, seems like. But your quality of life has been decent besides that with everything going on. I mean, yeah, I've been able to do a lot of things. Um, There's things that I can't do, and I'm not sure some of them are probably because of the Hodgkin's treatment, like the valves kind of are limiting what I can do in terms of hiking and stuff right now. It's yeah. But you used caused, to do that. And... But I used to do that. I used to backpack. I want to backpack again <laughs> someday. So yeah, we've, I've done a lot that, that I wanted to do. Yeah. Good. I like, I like hearing things like that about people's stories and seeing it may have limited you, but you still were able to make the best of things and get out and enjoy life. And yeah. Yeah. You've always had a herd of dogs and <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Well, Just two at a time at the most, unfortunately. That's not really quite a herd. I wanted a herd, but Doug said no. <laughs> I want a herd one day. Yeah. We'll just have a giant open space. I'm thinking farm somewhere and we're going to have a hundred dogs. <laughs> Ooh, that's a lot of dogs. You could have trouble with that many. Well, maybe it'll be like a family unit house. You know, Aunt Carol will be there. Yeah. So like 50 dogs are hers and 50 dogs are mine. That works. Yeah. I think that works pretty well. Especially since hers will be so elderly, they won't be able to cause any trouble. (laughs) So what was your support system like? I know Grandma, of course. She was amazing. And... She, yeah, she was just amazing. And I think it took a lot out of her because the stress, you know, and my dad was working and he was working a lot and he couldn't be there. And I don't think he necessarily knew just how awful sometimes it was, but he was also, I mean, he was there and he did come in and check on me and help with things, but she was the one who had to drive me every time and deal with the throwing up constantly and the feeling so horrible and the not necessarily pleasant attitude I would sometimes have and which I deeply regret because the poor woman was going through hell on her you know watching her baby suffer yeah there was also both of my older sisters were off at college and so they weren't as they weren't there as much and able to help with anything your mom was too young to really help. She was, you know, very sweet and she would be quiet around me and she would come in and stuff, but she, she couldn't really help the way an older person might've been able to, she couldn't help driving. Yeah. I had some really good friends. My two best friends were there for me through the whole thing. One of them lived about a block away and every day after school, I swear every day she came over to the house, checked on how I was. If I was feeling horrible, she didn't stay long, but she was always just there and checking in. And if I felt better, then she'd tell me all about what was going on at school and all of the 
all the stories gossip there. And so that was just huge. And even I wasn't able to obviously go to graduation in graduation. I went to see my friends and my music teacher had apparently put my name in for departmental honors in music because I'd been involved heavily in the music program the whole time, starting practically before my freshman year. And yeah. uh, so all of a sudden they announced my name as getting departmental honors in music, even though I wasn't on the stage to go get a diploma or anything. So that was really special. And uh, yeah. That's really sweet. And then uh, I guess I didn't realize that you and Doug didn't know each other then. I just, we, yeah, I just always we, assumed he's been around for forever. So he was dating <laughs> my, one of my best friends at my senior year and, but he graduated already. So I didn't really know him particularly. I kind of knew him as her boyfriend that I didn't have a lot of opportunity to see for quite a while. And then it wasn't until we, I had graduated and gone on to Cabrillo and he also was at Cabrillo and we ran into each other there. And that's when we got to, to hang out and ended up together. Yeah. Thank God for that, because I don't know what I would have done without him in any of the later surgeries and things. Yeah, I was going to say, he's been supportive of you so much now. that When you have a guy who will get in the shower with you and hold the drain tubes that are hanging out of your body while you're trying to shower. Found a keeper. You've got a real winner. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you guys found each other. Me too. How do you think the whole experience shaped you as a person? And I know that's, that's always a hard question because on the one hand, you know, I think mom and I talked about it in that episode with her that you don't want to have gone through it necessarily, but at the same time, it also makes you kind of stronger in certain ways. And it, you know, shapes the way that you look at the world and how do you think it affected you? Well, one of the things I've always thought I had that, you know, close to a year, it seemed like it was a year that I was spent a lot of time lying in bed and playing solitaire and just not being able to, you know, I'd sleep, I'd wake up. I, we didn't have a TV in every room and there was no internet. So it was, it was hard. And I just had to get used to saying, okay, yeah, there's all this stuff I'd like to do. And I'm just going to have to wait. I have to wait and have to just let it be. And I think, unfortunately, that that kind of lasted too much in my life, where I just, I look at myself and I think I've too easily, am just willing to sit back and say, okay, well, we'll just, you know, wait until, you know, whatever. And I don't charge headlong into something that I'm excited about. And I, I think some of it is just that I taught myself just to shut it down, calm down, don't worry about it. Just, you know, and daydream about it maybe instead or play another game of solitaire. And <laughs> I think to some extent that worked well during, but it's also, I think, left a little trail through my life of being a little too easily doing that. 
if that makes sense. It does make sense. It's just so funny hearing you talk about how you think you've been affected and it's so different from, you know, what, what I see, hmm. you know, I mean, you've always been, it's funny you use the word calm because you've always been, I felt like a very calming presence, which I think really counteracted mom. Cause I really think she was more of the like, let's go get things done. And you would be like, yeah. no, let's wait for the results first. Let's talk to the doctors, get all the facts and then let's make yeah. a plan, you know? And yeah. I think you two really balanced each other out when it came to my care. Yeah. And we made a good team. Yeah. And I know with your experience too, with working for a doctor's office and having been through all the appointments yourself, mm-hmm. you brought a very different perspective than, um, you know, just a mom trying to deal with it with no, with no nothing information or experience. I was so glad to be after mother had gone through all of that herself, being at the doctors herself with me. And I was so glad to be able to be there with Mary, even just to be there, just because it's, it's better than being by yourself. If you can arrange. Oh yeah. That extra support. But yeah. I mean, you were always there at all of my doctor's appointments. You were like a little second mom to me and you were very helpful in, you know, being able to break down different words and things for us when mm-hmm. doctors would yeah. say things and you're like, and I don't know you. what you just said. <laughs> yeah. Except for that first doctor that we all love so much. And yeah, that she would, she would, she would come into the room and do things that would make you start screaming and you would be sobbing and screaming on Mary's shoulder and she would start very quietly talking fast to tell Mary and then she'd be out of the room and we didn't have a clue what she had said it was so frustrating yeah yeah that and that last time which I'm going to tell you I don't know if you'll put this in the podcast or not but I did want to tell you the the last time we saw her she had wanted a urine sample to see if you had an infection. You weren't showing signs of an infection, but you wanted a urine sample while you were there. We had done one, just a regular clean up and then catch it in a little thing outside the body. Mm -hmm. And it was completely clear, nothing grew out. So we were all excited. And she said, that that wasn't good enough. She had to go in with a catheter, which as you know, didn't work ever and get, get a sample from inside to know. And what? yeah, so that, that was, doesn't even make any sense. No, because if there was an, if there was contamination on the outside, it would have grown stuff and it didn't. Right. So if there was contamination on the inside, it would have grown stuff, but it didn't. So, yeah. So it was, the thing was in the moment, my brain was not, I think we were just in that shock state dealing with this. And then she's got you, you know, held down and screaming as she's trying to get the thing up there to get the sample. And that was when we left and I said, well, we're never going back there again. And I'm not sure if I immediately afterwards, or if it was a little bit later when I calmed down and the adrenaline wasn't surging quite as badly that I realized that made no freaking sense. 
And here she is. She should know better. I really dislike this woman. <laughs> yes, Clearly. Probably- well, I know even, even that day, though, through all yeah. of that, you know, my mom still, she, she said to her, you know, she didn't even know what to think and make of the appointment. And it wasn't yeah. until you said when you guys left, well, we're not going back. That mom was like, oh, yeah, we're not going back. So, yeah. I mean, even I think just having that backup of mm-hmm. reinforcement of saying something out loud mm-hmm. that maybe she was too scared to admit yet. Yeah. Yeah. Even just having that was realizing that. Hopeful, yeah. For her to realize. We have to find something else. This is not working. Yeah. I learned a lot about self-advocacy and that I think helped with helping you and your mom through everything. And what I still, you asked if there was something that I still struggle with physically or emotionally that stems from the medical history. And I, I have this feeling of not being able to trust my body. I expect it to screw me over in some way. I expect it not to let me be able to follow through and do the thing that I'm trying to do, because there's just been too many times when that's happened. So physically, I've had to learn to love my surgically altered body a few times. And sometimes I've been depressed about stuff that I want to do and I can't or couldn't. And I've just had to learn to accept that it happens. Sometimes I can't do stuff. Yeah. I have to figure out what I can do and do that instead. Like hiking and things like that or? Yeah. Yeah. Hiking, backpacking. Yep. Have you been finding alternatives that you can do? Not so much. I, I think just doing less, more level hikes and not worrying about trying to push the pace or go up hills or do long ones. I just keep it to what I feel like I can do, which isn't a lot right now. I'm working on that yeah. with the new medication, but we'll see how that goes. Well, I think it's pretty incredible everything that you've been through. Like I said, you've always been a really calm influence. I know on myself and I expect for John as well. And we've always been someone that I thought as very strong. Ha ha. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're here, you're standing, and I never heard you complain about any of the things, any of the cards you've been dealt. I've never heard you complain. And I think that takes a special kind of person to just kind of learn how to roll with it and make the best of it. And there's nothing you can do about it. So you might as well just make best. Yeah. And it does help to have a lot of good support systems. And I have been very fortunate with that. Well, is there... Anything else that you want to say? Anything that comes well, to mind? Well, just one, one thing about your mom is that she was young and she was basically doing fine or appeared to be healthy and act going, you know, doing stuff. So she apparently, I found out years later, didn't, she thought I was going to die. And she had been told, no, they can cure this. And she thought they were saying that to make her feel better because she was young and she, they didn't want her to be upset. So she didn't believe that I wasn't going to die. And I don't know, 
I suspect that's not a terribly uncommon thing for kids, sisters, and brothers to have or to think, and they're getting less attention, and this very, very sick person is there, and I'm wondering if we should have taken her with us to one of the doctor appointments, and then the doctor maybe could have also explained to her what was going on, and I don't know if that would have helped, but I wish there was some way to have given her a little bit more support through that too. Yeah, that's hard on a little kid. Well, I think, you know, grandma was just more focused on keeping you alive and surviving herself too. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's a lot to juggle when you've got, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and, and were, of course, Mary, Mary never told us that this was going yeah. in her mind. She never said, I don't believe you. I know she's actually going to die. Yeah. Uh, so nobody knew until quite a long time later that that was the case. That's sad. She was a cute little thing. <laughs> yeah. Did she tell you about the time grandma bought her deodorant in high school? This uh, is one of her favorite stories that she used to tell me as a kid. I mean, we all know grandma got kind of little when she got older and was a little bit, maybe mm-hmm. head is with it when uh, John and I were around. Yeah. Blame and, me. Oh yeah. <laughs> mom, mom told us to blame you. And one of her <laughs> examples was when you were going through everything, she was in high school or junior high or whatever. And she was in the changing rooms in school and for gym practice and had noticed other girls had like deodorant in their lockers and she didn't really need deodorant or whatever. But she wanted to fit in. So she asked grandma to get her deodorant. Grandma bought her men's deodorant. Oh, good. That would make (laughs) her feel really like she's fitting in. Yeah. She just like tucked it into the back of her locker and never used it. Yeah. (laughs) Grandma was a wee bit distracted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she was. Good reason. You kept her busy. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. You're welcome. Again, pretty incredible. Just, I mean, we didn't really dive deep on any one thing. It was just kind of a list of things that you've been through. And that in itself is pretty crazy that you've been through all that and still smiling. You're still smiling over here. you enjoyed this week's episode of body talk with bex and our wonderful interview with my aunt jean if you haven't yet already make sure to hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast and also leave a review if you feel like donating and helping me to continue with this podcast make sure to become a patron on patreon.com And also check out the bodytalkwithbex.com website for any resources if you need any. And if you would like to come on the show and share your own story, please reach out to me and let me know. I am looking for people to come on the show and share their experiences with everyone. Again, thank you so much for listening and hopefully you'll tune in next week.